Today's guest is a licensed attorney, a real estate broker, and a general contractor who also serves as the executive vice president, the chief credit officer of First Foundation Bank. He is also the founder and CEO of Black Crown Incorporation, a disruptive collective that handles home purchases and real estate brokerage. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for the warm intro. It, it, all those things sound like a lot of things, but really, I'm just <laughs> I'm just a normal dude who's trying to do something positive and give back. You know, I've learned a lot of bad lessons and tough, you know, tough things in my lifetime. And hopefully, you know, we can talk about some of those things and, you know, somebody can avoid making those same mistakes. Yes, exactly. And that's why I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. And I just want to say thank you so much for making all the time to speak with me. And I would love to learn, as you said already, from all your stories, like from your experiences. You have what? Over 22 years of experience, you know, in the banking um, industry and everything that you do. And I would love to le- learn from this experience and from your mistakes also. So um, I love the fact I love the fact that, you know, your mission is to make um, financial literacy accessible to all. And that's what I basically need or everyone needs basically now to become much more um, financially um, literate. So what, what inspired you to choose this career path? What inspired you to go into banking, into finance, into law? And can you share your, your life and career journey so far with me? Yeah, man. And feel free to, to stop me along the way and ask questions. You know, I, I understand some of the things I'll tell you, will be, you'll be weird. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I knew that I didn't know enough about finances when I was growing up. I mean, we all grow up with parents that are working hard, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. your mom and dad, if you're lucky enough to have both of them around, they don't they don't have the time to teach you about money and finance because they're just busy trying to live life. And, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, I'm a dad, and I know what that's like. You go to work, you come home, you want to spend time with your kids and you don't necessarily stop and say, okay, son, this is how you buy a home. This is how you buy a car. This is how you build your credit. And we don't really teach that in school. We should. Yeah. We have these micro and macroeconomics classes where we teach people about how the economy works and how the <laughs> stock market works, but nobody teaches you how to live life and be an adult. And we get embarrassed as we get older Hmm. uh you know about asking people it's like almost like oh we should know this but we don't and it's so it's so taboo to ask but we're all the same here Hmm. so i i knew when i was young that i didn't know enough about these things and i wanted to understand it better my dad was in the mortgage business and and he knew the single family business and he knew credit and he knew finance and he would always say these things to me that I hadn't, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm in school. I'm supposed to be a smart kid. And I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. It was, it was blew me away. Yeah. So I, I spent out, I spent the majority of my time when I was young working, just trying to understand business and finance. And because of that, you know, I've always been in the finance space and, you know, I've, I've always wanted to be, learn more and more and more. And I continue to be curious. That's actually how I became an attorney is I was just curious about, you know, law as it relates to business and mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when you're in business, people can try to push you around because you don't know the law that well. And the more you educate yourself, the more you can arm yourself and and learn. So, um, I mean, if you want the gory details, uh, I, I worked in in the single family residence, you know, buying home business, you know, buying and selling as as a real estate broker. My father years and years and years ago, I worked on the sales side, and and mm-hmm. I knew that being a salesperson was all well and good, but you didn't know the details. Yeah. So I wanted to learn more about underwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that, basically that's the person who looks at all the financial information and makes the decision whether you get a loan or you don't get a loan. Right. Yes. yes. So I thought that would be interesting because then I could figure out, you know, what everybody's financials look like too. So the added benefit was I get to see all these wealthy people's financials. I get to see what their tax returns look like. And if wealthy people show me how they make money and how much they're worth, maybe I can learn to do that. Hmm. Yes. You know? Yes, it makes sense, right? And I would love you to, like, you know, teach me about this already. Like, can you tell me what you've learned so far from how the wealthy people make their own money? Yeah, of course. Uh, So, by way of backstory, you know, as a chief credit officer of a bank, my job is to set the credit policy. And now I've kind of elevated from an underwriter into somebody who oversees all of the underwriting, all the credit decisioning, and all these policies and procedures. And I put the rules in place for who gets money and really who doesn't get gets money. And then I monitor to make sure that those rules are being followed. And that people are getting, you know, treated fairly and equitably and all the, all the fun stuff that goes along with, you know, regulation. Yes. But one of the things I've learned over looking at a lot of different people's wealth is there, there really is no shortcut, shortcut to becoming wealthy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who want to get wealthy overnight don't appreciate the fact that if you get wealthy overnight, you don't necessarily understand how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And the way I, I, I use it as an example for most people is if you woke up tomorrow morning yeah. 
and you were three times as strong as you are today, you're probably going to break some stuff. Yeah, it's true. Right? Yeah, you're just yeah. not used to the strength. You're not used to that, that power. And it takes some time to get used to it. Managing yeah. money is the same way. If you had a million dollars tomorrow, you probably wouldn't manage it as well as if you had a million dollars and you slowly built that money over time because you learned how to grow. Mm, Wealthy people tend to grow their businesses over time, but we always look at them with the lens of, wow, you know, he or she or they are extremely wealthy. I want to be like them, but you don't see what they go through. I just got off a call yesterday with a very successful individual. And he was telling me his story about how he built this multi-billion dollar tech company. Yeah. And I was going over his loan request and we were talking about his business. And he was telling me that when he was 17 years old, he started this business out of a garage. Mm. Him and his business partner started out of a garage. But they didn't have enough money for food. But they found out if you went for, to Chick-fil-A, the restaurant in, in the U.S., and you were one of the first 100 customers, you got free Chick-fil-A for a year. You get, to, you get to eat there for free for a year. Wow. So when he was starting his business, him and his partner camped outside of a Chick-fil-A to be one of the first hundred in so they could have free food for a year so they could put all their money back in the business. And this man is very successful by today, but you would never know that's how he started. Mm-hmm. It was a passion, that, that, that energy that he had going into it. And that really makes the difference between very, very wealthy people and I think people who, who are struggling for success their whole life is that passion, that, that, that love for the business that they're in, the joy that they, they, they get from it. That is really what makes the difference between wanting to learn, even when it's difficult, wanting to push through, even when it's challenging. Mm, wow. And how would you describe like this good old fashioned, you know, financial literacy, yeah. you know, and how can we use this literacy to, to build wealth for ourselves also? So I think the, the simple thing is, is that we have a tendency as society to focus on net worth, right? Like you hear it on the news, like, oh, this person's worth this much and this person's worth that much. Mm. How much you're worth means nothing. And whenever I talk to people about good old financial literacy, good old fashioned advice, here's what I'm talking about. Your money that you get every single month, the money that you make and whatever business that you're in, whatever entrepreneurship that you, you call your own, you, what money you're putting out, that cash flow, that money in and money out, that is a real determination of wealth. And I'll give you a great example of that. If you're worth $10 billion, but at the end of the day, you don't make any money because you have as, me, as much income as you do expense. Yeah. What good is that worth? And that's in. Right. But if you're worth a million dollars and you've got no expenses, you've got a tremendous amount of cash flow. And cash flow is an ability to buy. Your ability to buy means so much more than people understand it. And we don't teach this in school, so I don't blame anybody. So 75% of gross domestic product in the United States is based on consumer spending, consumers' ability to buy. So if you don't have any ability to buy... The economy suffers, you suffer, everybody suffers. Yes. Yet we, we spend our lives chasing the things that we think are important for wealth. Hmm. You know, people, people want to buy a car, they want to buy a nice watch, and they, they feel like, oh, I deserve these things. And while I totally appreciate you should reward yourself, mm-hmm. we should always look for assets that return income to us or that provide a cash flow benefit to us. Hmm. People often will you know, we'll go out and buy like a really high end car. And I made the same stupid mistake. I'm, I'll never forget. I was, I was young. I went out and bought a brand new seven series BMW, a very, very expensive car. I think it was, um, back in 2012. Yeah. I had no business in that car. I had no business driving that car. I buying it. It was, it was ridiculous. My, I think my payment was $1,200 a month. And while, you know, I could afford it. Yeah. My some of the properties that I bought, the one that I just I just bought this year, uh, like probably five or six months ago, that mortgage payment's a thousand dollars a month. Wow. And here here's the beauty in that in that property, I put I think it was forty or fifty thousand dollars down. The rent is two thousand dollars a month. My mortgage payment's a thousand dollars a month. I pay a property manager here and there. I wound up taking in my pocket about eight hundred bucks a month in my pocket. Hmm. And that that just small twist in how you think about buying things and where you put your money. If I would have done that instead of buying the car, I would have made $800 a month every single month in my pocket instead of spending $1,200 a month every single month in the car. Yeah. And when I was young, I just didn't have that vision. I wanted people so badly to think that I was successful that I cared about what they thought I was driving. or I cared about what the world thought about me. I thought if, if I look successful, more successful come and it's this perpetual thing. That isn't the way money works, and we're not raised to understand that. Mm-hmm. What you do with your money doesn't have to be on public display. 
It doesn't have to be in front of everybody, but it has to reward you and you have to make good decisions. Now, if I wanted to buy that car, two of those properties will pay for that car and still put money in my pocket. True. But here's the irony. I drive a 2015 Jeep, okay? I don't, <laughs> I don't drive some high-end car because it's paid for. I love it. And I know that, honestly, my money is better invested in other places. True. And I don't care what anybody else thinks about that. And we spend so much time caring about what people think. So it's like, it's about, you know, putting our money in places that gives us returns, basically, like investing our money into businesses or into things that could, you know, create returns or generate more money for us or more income for us. Well, it's not just that too. I mean, yeah, absolutely, if you can. I mean, I want to be cognizant. There are a lot of people who are just struggling just to get a place to live. I mean, there, there are all diff- there's all different degrees of, of wealth and success. And for some people, that may, may mean just owning a home. Mm-hmm. What I tell people is, is when it came to buying a home, I lived in a 780 square foot, I'm sorry, a 580 square foot, one bedroom, one bath, small apartment for almost 12 years mm-hmm. when I was making a lot of money. And the reason why is I knew that the rent of that place was cheaper than my mortgage payment would have been if I were to try to buy a place. Yeah. But the second it became cheaper for me to, to buy a place and pay a mortgage payment, I shifted into that property. Mm-hmm. So it was just an, a better economic decision for me. And I didn't have any ego wrapped up into me living in a very small, tiny place, you know, that, that wasn't, you know, very over the top, yeah. but it allowed me to save money. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to keep my expenses low mm-hmm. and it allowed, and, and it put pressure on me to, to always be, you know, cognizant of what was going on in the market. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget when I left that property that I was in, I think I was paying at the time 1400 bucks a month. I live in a very expensive area. I was paying 1400 bucks a month for, for my rent. I knew I could buy a place for about, 1200 bucks a month with the money that I had saved to put down. I then went and bought a place and my, my cost went down 200 bucks a month and I got a better home, a bigger space. And now I'm, I own it as opposed to everything else. So yeah. it isn't always about cash flow. When you think about money coming to you, sometimes it's about lowering your overall expense in the bigger picture of things. Yeah. But we don't spend the time. When was the last time you went over your personal financial situation and you actually looked at all of your expenses? Most people don't do that very often, right? Not so often, yeah. 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 We, we should all know what our expenses are. You know, and as you get older, as you get more family members, I've got a wife and a son, some of the expenses are expenses that they incur. You're not micromanaging things. But what you are doing is you're looking at things that you're spending and you're asking yourself, can I spend less and get the same benefit or do I want to spend this? There's nothing wrong with having these auxiliary expenses and spending things on things you like. If you like going to the bar once a, once a week, and spending money and having drinks and that means something to you, then do it as long as you understand that's, that you're doing that and you have to give up other places in order to do that. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think that's the perspective that's missing. People don't necessarily think about their life. Success is not a destination. You don't get someplace and say, hey, I'm successful. Mm-hmm. Success is a journey. It's a long, long journey. And it starts with knowing where you're going. Yeah. People lose sight of that journey because they get caught up in things like social media and the drama of their lives and, you know, some stuff that may happen that, you know, it's unfortunate. At the end of the day, no matter what happens, if you're still here and you're still alive, your focus should be on chasing your journey, chasing your passions and following that path. Don't let these little things detour you. Mm-hmm. We all have setbacks. Yeah. You know? That's true. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's great advice. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> But, but if someone approaches you now and say, um, uh, Chris, I'm a very, you know, average person and I am like standing at the, the beginning of this journey, of this path of success, and my destination is financial um, stability, for example, what do you ask that person to do? Like a person telling you, oh, um, I can barely, you know, pay my rent, for example, I can barely do this, I can barely do that, but my end goal is to become financially stable. What should I do? So this is a hard thing to answer for everyone because everybody wants, wants general advice. And what I tell them is, is we, we shouldn't do this in a generalized sense. We should do this in a very personalized approach. So what I tell everybody to do is, number one, know your expenses, know your income. Know how much money you make every single month. Yeah. And if you're in a job that has inconsistent income, mm-hmm. find an average of the last 12 months to use as kind of your measuring test, your barometer. Then know your expenses. You'll, you'll know what they all are. People should centralize their expenses to the extent that they can. So what I do and my wife does, I think it's a good financial practice. Everything goes on our charge card. We use American Express. We pay it off every single month. 
everything goes on the charge card and we pay it off every single month. But this allows me to know every single charge that comes through on that card and there's nothing that's being charged any other place. So I have a, a list, a comprehensive list every single month of charges. And my wife and I will actually go over that once a month just to make sure that we know where the spending is and you know, there's nothing else going on there. But it also helps us appreciate how much money we're spending and where we're spending it. Because a lot of people who have the same question won't realize you're spending a lot of money every single month on things like Amazon or on things like, you know, unnecessary, like people say cut back on coffee. That's stupid. But if you're spending, you know, $30, $40, you know, a day eating out, maybe you want to cut back there. Maybe you want to buy some food, you know, and make it at home and, you know, bring it to work or something like that. But yeah, I start there. Always know your expenses. And if you can get into a situation where you're cash flow positive and you're putting money away every single month or you're saving it for an investment or you can, you can invest in that, Mm-hmm. then you're on the right track for that financial freedom. What most people do when they get into this is they realize that they're spending more than they're making or they're spending close to what they're making. And that's where the real key difference is. It doesn't matter how much you make as long as you know how much you're spending and you can control the spending. If you can't control the spending and you're really tight on money, I completely respect and appreciate that. But you have to at least be cognizant of that in order to make some kind of change. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, be willing to give up. The second thing I tell people is, is you have to figure out what your plan is. Mm. Most of us, including myself, you're not going to get wealthy on your nine to five job. The things you go to work, you know, your job is not going to make you wealthy. Mm-hmm. Now, if you own your own business, it could, it could definitely help. Mm. And I think a lot of people think, oh, if I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going to be super wealthy. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's the investments that you make between the hours of 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. The, the side hustles, those things you do on the side. Yes. That actually make you wealth. Those investment decisions you make along the way are really what make the difference in you becoming truly wealthy or you being in that rat race of having to work in order to make money. And I think people lose perspective of that. They're, we glorify in American business the entrepreneur. And I'm an entrepreneur. I, I, love, I love business. <laughs> but people think that that's the end-all, be-all result for, for wealth. And it's not. It's just one way you're going to build wealth. It might be a great way for you, might be a terrible way for you, but there are other ways we should all be focusing on. Here's a fact. It's, it's, a, true, it's a true statistic. I looked it up. I think it came out of Oxford five, five or six years ago. I should find the original survey, but it effectively said that if you start a side hustle, a job outside of your normal business hours, yeah. you have a 33% greater likelihood of success, a one-third greater likelihood of success. And when you think about most businesses that start, they fail. Mm-hmm. Why would a side hustle have a 33% greater chance of success is because we're passionate about it. We're starting a business that we're interested in, that we like, yeah. that we enjoy, or that we have some interest that, that, that piques our curiosity and we go down that path. Mm. If you love something or you enjoy it, yeah. you're going to work harder, you're going to work through it, and you're going to generally find a way to persevere because you have a passion for it. That's true. Yeah. So people, people tend to look at their, their, their business and say, oh, you know, I'm so miserable. I hate this. I work for somebody else. Or, oh, you know, I work for myself and it's not getting me where I want to be. Don't lose sight of the other things you can do to build wealth. For me, real estate ownership is a huge side hustle for me. Yeah. That's not my primary job, what I do every day. I, you know, I work in banking. I work in law. I work in finance. I work, I work in these sectors. But my passion is I love to buy real estate. I love, I love to build a portfolio. And I hope one day that I can give that all to my son but I started with nothing. I didn't have anybody help me. Nobody gave me this. I didn't walk into legacy wealth. It came from me saving and scratching to buy a home for myself, mm-hmm. then saving and scratching to buy my first investment property, mm-hmm. and then doing it again. I'll never forget the first time I bought a home, the, my first home, I was eating top ramen noodles out of a package <laughs> for the next several months because I had spent every dime I had and I felt that I was so financially constricted that I was scared. Mm-hmm. That's a good feeling. It's a good feeling because you, you know the sacrifices that you made. It helps humble even the most successful person when you remember what it was like and where you came from. True. Um, was I was motivated to, you know, start um, the Black Crown Incorporation. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So Black Crown uh, is, is my real estate company. And the reason why that started was I was doing, I was buying investment real estate for myself. I'm a real estate broker and I was buying investment real estate for myself. And I figured out really quickly that, um, so real estate agents, there's two types. There's the listing agent, the person who lists the property for sale and puts it out there and says, hey, someone, you know, bring a buyer and come buy it. And there's a selling agent, the person who actually brings the buyer to sell it. 
There's a couple different variants where one, one agent can do both. But for the most part, that's the way how transactions work. I figured out that if I bought properties, I could be, I could be my own selling agent. I could sell the property to myself and that 2%, 2.5% commission I could use towards the down payment. True. Mm-hmm. So because I was doing that, it allowed me to save less money and it gave me a little more cash in the game. And it also made me a subject matter expert. I now am the business professional whose responsibility it is to know this because I'm passionate about real estate. I love the business. So it gave me an education and also gave me the ability to control a transaction. Well, that business, when I started, was only one or two, one property a year for myself. And I had, you know, save and save and save. And now as you grow and scale real estate over time, I mean, you know, over 20 years is a long time, you start to build more and more cash flow from these real estate investments and it enables you to buy at a, at a, big, at a faster cadence. Mm-hmm. So I bought, I've, I've slowly started to buy more and more properties and that two and a half percent of each one of those transactions, that, that adds up. That winds up being a lot of money. But in the process of doing that, a lot of my friends would reach out to me. They know that I'm an attorney. They know that I'm in banking and finance. And they know that I, I do this. So they would say, hey, can you help me? Yeah. Some of my friends are celebrities. Some of them are high net worth individuals. And you know, they, they say, hey, I just want someone that I trust that already has my financial information. Mm-hmm. And I kind of fit that mold, right? Like I'm your friend. You know me. You know, I already have your financials anyway. I've already have your tax. I already have all that stuff for you. So you don't have to redisclose to somebody else and tell them your story. So it just kind of made sense. Yeah. And I decided to formalize it, put together a company and, and grow the business and, and do a little bit of the, you know, the retail stuff for other people. And now think about that. Now, not only am I making money from my passive income, but I have a real estate brokerage in each one of those transactions, I'm getting paid two, two and a half percent to help my friends find a property. And that money now I can use for another property once I aggregate, obviously enough to buy another property. True. So it, it kind of spirals forward. And a lot of young people you know, they, they want all of these avenues, all these streams of income right away. And what I can tell you is, is I started with just working a normal job, mm-hmm. working a normal job for somebody else. Yeah. And that's where I started. And it wasn't, be, these things all layered in over time. Remember that, you know, you're not gonna wake up with three times the strength tomorrow and be able to, you know, have the same lifestyle. You're going to crush things. You're going to break things. You're going to have this, this strength. You're not going to get a million dollars tomorrow and know what to do with it. And I sure as hell didn't walk into the, the real estate ownership and the cash flow that I have now. It was slow over time. And it was on my journey. Mm-hmm. I'm on that path forward. And, I, and every, every once in a while, you'll have an opportunity where you say, wait a minute, I can grab this and I can, I can probably make a little more money. I can grab this and, and make a lot more money. Yes. I tried to start a real estate brokerage when I was younger and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. It, it never got off the ground. I never sold a property. It was, it was a resounding failure. Why? And I, I think number one, I was young. I didn't, I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand that an older generation of wealthy, sophisticated clients didn't mm-hmm. resonate with me. Mm-hmm. I just could not, I could not convince them to make the single largest investment they were going to make with somebody as young as na- and naive as I was. Okay. Yeah. I think part of it was that I was a little bit more introverted. I wasn't an extrovert. I wasn't willing to go out there and be that, that social butterfly and really mix it up and network and chop mm-hmm. it up with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of my career path was number one, I got a little older. I'm definitely a little more gray for the, for those of you who've seen my picture. Um, <laughs> I got a little bit more experience and what, what I've been able to do is I don't network the way other people do. I don't go out there and say, I'm going to, you know, connect with people. I learned that my way, my path for success was being authentic and genuine, being real, <laughs> like me, love me, hate me, whatever you want. That's fine. <laughs> but you know, I'm going to be real with you and I'm going to tell you straight up how it is. And that over time has built relationships, with people who trust me because they know if I don't like something, I'm going to be like, Hey man, this is a dumb decision. Don't be stupid. <laughs> but that level of confidence in knowing that you're going to get somebody who's more concerned about you and transparent than their commission <laughs> has helped build this portfolio of business over time that I wasn't able to do when I was young. younger. Yeah. That, that's what, that's what comes with, you know, experience and age, I, I believe. Yeah. Sometimes, some people, it comes naturally. Some people are very natural, you know, bubbly personalities who are very authentic and they have this like internal confidence where they're like, I can do anything and, you know, I can dominate the world. And sometimes it works for them and sometimes it doesn't. Mm. I just wasn't that way. Dear friend, you can grow your personal and business brand by creating a strong network through podcasting. Create real human connections, have the ability to share your story and interesting point of view. To get started, you can make use of the special offer for friends of this podcast, which is on kitcaster.com slash mural. K-I-T-C-A-S-T-E-R dot C-O-M 
slash M-I-R-R-O-R. The link and further instruction or details will be found in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or whatever platform you listen to this on. Thank you. And now from, from, your, from your, you know, experience so far, like, you know, with the um, Black Crown, your company, and also from years of different experiences, can you advise me, can you advise the listeners out there on how to invest legally and um, in the proper way, in the best way um, in real estate? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're if you're in the stocks too, that's also good. I mean, don't get me wrong; securities are also a wonderful thing. My personal love is real estate. That's just that's just what I like. But there are definitely different types of investments. Mm-hmm. For me, I think for most people, is they're intimidated by real estate. Uh, buying a property is the single largest investment most people will make during their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And they, they, traditionally, it's an investment. What I will tell you is, by today's standards, you know, I, I look at real estate more from utility. It should be a place for you and your family to live and build memories and have all those wonderful things. Yes. And you shouldn't look at it as an investment per se, but outside of your home, you, you, if you're going to buy a property and you're going to rent it out to somebody else, you're going to you know, buy something that you think is an investment for you, whether you're going to run a business out of it or you know, whatever you're going to use it for, it's going to make money for you. Mm-hmm. You have to, to dive in and, and get over your fear, get over your phobia. That was my initial problem too, is I was afraid to be a landlord. I was afraid to, to rent property out. What I learned quickly is I can hire a neutral third-party property manager, somebody else whose job it is to, to manage the property, and I can get a check every single month. Now, I don't think you can, you can be completely hands-off like most people like want to fantasize about. You still have to be involved. You still have to take pride of ownership. I, all of my properties are nicer, and I love that because I'm able to give somebody a good experience. But um, getting over the fear of, of the unknown and, and knowing that I wasn't a hundred percent, cause I, I knew real estate finance. I knew about, uh, you know, I'm a building, I'm a contractor as well. I knew about the building and structure, but I didn't know about actually renting a property to somebody. I had never done that before. I'd seen a lot of other people do it. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot, a lot of unknowns there. So you just got to jump in. You've got to figure out. So for me, it was, I knew about how much money I could, I could spend. And I think for my first property that I bought as an investment, I want to say it was like about $150,000, $160,000 property. It was in the Midwest. I knew that I had to put about 20, 25% down because it was an investment property. I wasn't going to live there. And I saved that money. And when the time came, it was looking for a property. I found one that was built. I think it was after 2003 that was built. It was relatively, you know, clean. It was nice. And, you know, I looked around, put an offer in, didn't get it. Oh, <laughs> but, but I knew, I knew the mold of what it was I was looking for. And the reason why I was looking for that, that specific property is I knew that it could rent at a certain dollar amount in the market. I'd spent a lot of time online figuring out what rent was. Mm. So I knew my mortgage payment. I think on that property, it was around $800 a month was my mortgage payment. And I think, um, it's been so long now. I think it cash flowed. At, I think it rented out for about, uh, 1650 bucks a month. If I, if I do recall. So I knew that I needed a certain amount of rent for a certain amount of loan dollars because I knew the net difference would be cash flow in my pocket. And at the time, it wound up only being like $400 a month in cash flow to me. But when you think about it in the context of, you know, me putting about $40,000 into this property and, you know, me getting a $400 a month, that's about a 10%, you know, 12, 10 to 12% cash on cash return every single month. Where else are you going to go and get 10 to 12% on your return on, you know, every single month? No way. Plus you get the upside benefit of equity going up. So for me, it was like, I, I don't know where I could go and get a better deal, even though it's only 400 bucks a month. I mean, really wealthy people were laughing at me. They're like, why would you buy 400 bucks a month? Like, that's not an investment. Like, what is that? That's, that's, you know, nothing. And I, I, to me, it was everything, hmm. you know, to me, it was a huge amount of money. And the next property was another 400 bucks a month. And the next one after that was like around five or 600 bucks a month. And, you know, sometimes they're up and down, but you know, when you start, you know, buying more and more properties over time, if you buy 10 properties at, let's call it $400 a month, it's $4,000 a month. That can change someone's life. That's true. Yeah, very true. And it doesn't, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. You're going to have to buy. And I love how people on social media always say, oh, you can buy all these properties. You can have it over. It's going to take time. And the reason why is you buy an investment property, mm-hmm. that cash flow that comes in isn't going to show up to your next tax return. Mm-hmm. You're not going to file your next tax return until the April of the end of that year. So that, that year ends, the next year, April, then you file your tax return. Mm-hmm. then you have some evidence of income. But guess what? If you bought it mid-year, you don't have the full year's income on your tax return. No. <laughs> so you don't have the full benefit. So you might have to wait another year to get the full benefit to really qualify for a property. Because when you're buying single-family homes as investments, mm-hmm. you qualify based on your income, not the income that it has potential to make. The bank doesn't care if you're going to rent it out. 
The bank cares, can you pay this back based on your income today? And that's just unfortunately how single family works. When you get into commercial properties and multifamily, look at the cash flow first and they look at the you know, equity in the property. And then lastly, they look at you as a sponsor and it's a different thought process, but you have to come in with way more money. And I couldn't afford that. Mm-hmm. You know, and imagining most of your listeners when they're starting, they're not going to want to go down that path. It's, it's more money. It's more risk. Yes. Just start with a single family home as a rental. Mm-hmm. See if you like it. See if it's good for you. See if it's something that you feel you can be comfortable with on your journey to success. Because the beauty of that type of investment, for the most part, it's hands off. You, you buy it, you have a property manager, things are good there, the property's well taken care of. You don't have a lot of interaction to do on a monthly basis. You have the time to go out and find another investment opportunity. Yes. Oh, that sounds Unlike the good. stock market, you don't have to study it over and over and over again and constantly be aware, aware of it. You have to be much more strategic in the stock market. I'm, a, I'm not that smart of a person, believe it or not. I'm actually... I sound smart in some, in some contexts. I, I just work hard. That's all it is. I'm not smart. I just work hard. And everybody who, who's listening to this podcast is completely, ca- if, I can, if I can do this, you yes. can do it. Wow. Yeah. It's that simple. And don't, and people sell courses online. Uh, if you want to buy a course, buy a course. I'm, I have no problem with that. If you want to, what I tell people though, there, there are two things I recommend before you do any of that though. Number mm-hmm. one, go to YouTube. Mm-hmm. Go to a podcast like this. Listen to the guests. Listen to people who have experience. Go to YouTube. Find people who are out there who do this for free and see if you like what you hear. Mm-hmm. If you do like it, go get a real estate license. Mm-hmm. Spend the money, learn about appraisal, finance, you know, real estate principles. Learn about you know, kind of the core concepts as it relates to fiduciary responsibility and being a broker. Go get your broker's license like I did if you can. It'll take you a couple of years. Go get your broker's license and then you can use your own commissions on your own deals too. Yeah. And you're in that space. That's very smart, actually. That's very smart. You make more money from it. But talking about finance, for example, if, if someone is interested in, you know, investing in real estate but doesn't have the capital for it, then one thinks about, you know, maybe going to the bank, get some credit, you know, lending some money for and borrowing some money, for example. And I, I know you, you have, like, an extensive background in various unique lending platforms, and you have these um, very strong credit skills and broad experience in different forms of lending. So with, with all of this, your expertise, I would love to, like, get some insider tips or learn about what I should, I should pay attention to when trying to source for fund for an investment. Okay, yeah. So one of the things that I think most people understand is that when you buy a property the, the, and you look, go to live in it yourself, mm. The, the, the money you need to bring in is a lot lower. You could actually buy a house with 3% down in some cases, you know, which is a lot less than 20% if you were going to live in it as an owner-occupied property. Yeah. But an investment property, so for me, I can't say that. I, I own this property. I own several other properties. The bank knows I'm not going to live in the properties that I'm buying at this point. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't lie to them, right? Yes. But if you're going to live in a property, one of the things that's become very popular as of, as of late has been house hacking. So let's say, yeah, okay. So let's say you want to buy a property and you don't have a whole lot of money. Let's say you've only got 3%. Mm-hmm. You go buy a property you can live in, right? Yes. And then you rent the rooms out. You, you make smart financial decisions as it relates to the home. You can rent the rooms out to your friends and get some cash flow that way. Mm-hmm. You can buy a property that's like a, like a duplex or has like an attached unit in the back if you can find one. Yeah. A very common thing in Los Angeles now is someone will buy a property and in the back is an ADU, basically an additional dwelling in the back. Mm-hmm. That's got like, you know, two bedrooms and one bath or one bedroom and one bath. And they can rent that back part out and still have their privacy in the main home in the front. Those are becoming very popular in Los Angeles. Those are wonderful opportunities. And here's the beauty of it. Because you live on the property, you can put 3% down and that person can help you with your monthly cash flow. That person can help you pay you a little bit of rent and it's not going to pay completely your mortgage, but it's going to come close to helping you out. Yes. And if anything, at the end of the day, you wind up in a better free cash flow situation. Because remember, like we talked about, it's all about how much money you have coming in and how much money you're putting out. And if you can limit how much you're putting out and bring in a little bit more, that, that's a wonderful solution to get financing. I, sure. People spend a lot of time focusing on their credit scores. Mm-hmm. And I get that. Um, you know, during the, during the Great Recession, a lot of people had really bad credit scores. They, you know, they fell victim to a lot of the foreclosures and there a lot of people who lost their jobs. And, you know, I totally understand that. It's been a long time since then, obviously, you know, 14 years. So a lot of people's credit has been you know, rehabilitated, but mm-hmm. banks typically look at bigger banks, um, the Chase, the Wells, the B of A, these larger banks, uh, you know, they, they tend to look at people in the, na- in the context of the, this box. If you have a credit score that's from 680 to, you know, 690 or 700, you fit in this box and you get this pricing. Mm-hmm. 
you're, you know, 720 to 760, you fit in this box and you get this pricing. <laughs> yeah. What I tell people is, is it's difficult even for me to go to one of those lenders just because they have this very, very narrow window of what they want. And what they did is they, they're so big at scale that those banks, they, they identify exactly what they want in this little box. And if you don't fit inside of it, it's easier for them to tell you no and find the next person that's coming in because they have this massive influx of customers at all times than it is for them to try to work with you to find a solution. Yeah. So the number one tip I give people when it comes to getting financing find a community, a regional or super regional bank. Those are the banks that aren't necessarily your Wells, your Chase, your B of A, these big banks. They're, you know, maybe the community bank on your corner that, that's something that's a little bit smaller. And people go, oh, it's a smaller bank. They have the same level of FDIC insurance and the same level of regulatory oversight as larger banks do. They're just a smaller version of it. But what you get is you get a one-on-one -on -one customer experience. You get to go in and talk to a lender. Hey, lender, um, I want to buy this property. How do I do it? And this person will actually tell you what you need to get the property yeah. as opposed to you send an email or, you know, you send a form and, you know, Wells Fargo or something like that. And they just say, you know, thanks, but no thanks or no. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can yes. actually talk to somebody and build that relationship. Yeah. When it comes to lending, when it comes to business and life in general, relationships are the truest form of currency. Hmm. You know, who you, who you know, how you interact with them. Those relationships really mean more to how successful you will be than the dollars in your bank account. Because you could lose the money tomorrow, but as long as those relationships are there, you will always be good. Yeah, that's true. So your lender is no different. You should have a relationship with your lender. You should have a relationship with somebody in your space. I often tell younger people who are just starting their business, you need to go to the bank and you need to talk to somebody who's your representative for the bank. And that person is like your concierge, your person you work with, the person that's going to give you financial advice. And if you don't have that person, you don't know that person, you don't have access to that person, you need to go to a bank that respects you and wants your business and will have that conversation with you. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. That means it's better for us to, like, I love what you said already. Like, it's better for us to build relationship with people that we work with, like the, the bank, for example, and also with real estate brokers like you also. Like, if I want to get a real estate property, for example, it's better for me to build a relationship with, with Chris, basically, and come to um, the Black Crown Incorporation and say, hey, Chris, um, yeah let's talk about this property and how can I finance it basically? Yeah. And I think a lot of people tend to look at, you know, building wealth is each opportunity is a transaction. Hmm. You, you can't, you, you can't look transactionally at life. Um, if you're a larger institution, you have no choice, but to do that. If, if you're, you know, if you're a big company, you have to kind of think in the context of, of transactions. But what most people don't know is if you have a significant enough relationship with like a chase, mm -hmm. you're in a private group and that mm -hmm. private group, treats you like they value your relationship because they have, <laughs> because they, they look at you and say, okay, this person's got a high net worth. They got, a, you know, you know, all these assets and we want that business. Mm -hmm. So then they start play, they start playing to your relationship. Well, the consumer is just like you and me, the normal people, we deserve that level of, of respect and relationship too. Yes. We get that. I get that at community banks. I get that from a lot of my business contacts. Anybody who works with me consistently knows that I value our relationship. I'm willing to take losses on, on commissions and, you know, give up transactions because I know that we have a connection and I value you being satisfied as a customer. Mm. A lot of people give me, a lot of people in the industry, especially in the real estate side, they get really upset whenever I discount fees or whenever I take you know, money off the table. In some cases, I'll just give commissions back to, you know, to clients because I really believe they need the money more than, than we do. Mm. And I, I get a lot of people who get upset with me for that. And what I'll tell you is I don't care. I just do <laughs> not care. I'm not devaluing my services or my expertise. I'm not devaluing how much, you know, real estate agents and brokers should make. What I'm doing is, is I'm putting a priority on that person's relationship with me. And I want to make sure they walk away from the transaction feeling like they were appreciated. That means more to me. Yes. But if people who work with you as an entrepreneur feel that way about relationships with you, they're going to want to work with you again. They're going to want that relationship. They're not going to look at you as, oh, you know, that guy came along, we did one deal, he was all right. They're going to say, you know what? I had a great experience with him. I want to do business with him again. Yes. Wow. I, I love the fact that we're talking about, you know, community banks and big banks and all that because I, I really love to understand how the bank works. Like for <laughs> a novice like I am, um, can you explain to me, you know, how the banking system works and how I can profit from it, from my community bank, for example, or from the big banks? How can I understand the operations and, you know, profit from it? So banks at their core are not very complicated. People, people see all these things in the media and they see all these like, you know, divisions of banking and they think that, you know, it's this overly complex system. It's really not. It's as simple as this. Banks are going to take in your deposits 
and they're going to give you a small interest rate on that. Let's say 1% for the purpose of this conversation. They're going to take your deposits. They're going to loan them out to somebody else as, as in the form of a loan. And they're going to get a larger interest rate on that. Let's say 4%. The difference between that 4% and that 1% they're paying for the deposits, that 3% is something called their net interest margin, their NIM. That is the core way banks make money. It's, it's arbitrage, right? Yes. You give me some money and I give you a little bit of a fee. I give them the money and they give me a bigger fee. And the difference between those two fees is how much I make. But when you think about that in the bigger 30,000 foot elevation, the, the, the world down perspective, that's a lot of money. Billions of dollars in that three or 4% arbitrage that they can get it means a lot of money for the banking system. And banks also make money on some auxiliary stuff like fees and you know services and stuff like that. But at its core, that's how banks make money. And it's not really complicated. It took us two seconds to talk about it. Yes. You know, so people, people tend to, you know, really stigmatize banking because it's, it's, again, one of those things in school, nobody ever teaches us how banks work. They teach us about how the economy works and how consumers spend, but nobody ever says, hey, this is how your bank works. What should you look for? Mm-hmm. We should all have a checking account and a savings account, okay? Your checking account should be your main operating account that you use to pay your expenses. You already know I put everything on my American Express and we pay that off every single month. It comes out of the checking account. Mm-hmm. We have a set-aside savings account. The savings account earns a small interest rate. It's not the world's greatest interest rate, but it's competitive. But I use that as a temporary holding space for other investments. So I'll save money in there for a period of time when I have enough for an investment, like another piece of real estate, that'll go into a real estate you know, investment. And then I'll have, you know, I'll build up that savings again. Then it goes into another real estate investment. And each one of those spends off a little bit more money. So I tend to say that everybody who goes in the banking system, you should at least have a checking account and savings account just personally, just for you. Baseline. If you have a, a, a stock or trading account and you want to use that at your bank, a lot of banks offer those services and people don't know that. They, they use E-Trade or they're using you know, Robinhood and stuff like that. That's all well and good for me. I like to have a single point where I can log in and kind of get as much of my financial picture as possible in one place. Yeah. So I don't like having all these third-party apps. So I use my bank for that as well. My bank actually has that benefit. So, And if you get large enough, you can actually have your bank in, in most circumstances, not all banks, but most of them. Uh, will have money management services. They can money. They can manage your securities portfolio for you, so you don't have to be up to date on everything that's happening in the markets. That's mm-hmm. their job. True. Uh, on the lending side, if you have a depository relationship like that, you have a checking and savings account. And let's say you started a side hustle and you have a business checking and savings account now too. Mm-hmm. You have a depository relationship with the bank. That is a relationship. People often say, "Well, Chris, I don't know anybody at my bank," and. I don't have a relationship with anybody. I don't even know where to get a loan. You always talk about these relationships, people get a loan. That's how you do. You already, have, all of us who have an account open somewhere, you have a relationship with the bank. The question is, does that bank value your relationship? And I'll tell you, if you have a depository relationship, you call that bank up, they should value your relationship. And if they don't, you either change banks to a, to a bank that does. True. Yeah. Uh, and that that's how you lever the banking system a little bit to get what you want. Okay. So if you're looking at the depository relationships, like how much they're giving you for your deposits, that is not the, the that is not a way to make to build wealth. The investments will be your way to build wealth, but it is a way to build a relationship with your bank and get favorable rates on loans and get more business on loans and get them to look at you because banks need those deposits to fund their loans. Mm-hmm. So by the sheer fact that you're a depositor and you have money there, yes. they want to make loans to people there. Also, mm-hmm. what people don't know is banks have. Banks have physical locations mm-hmm. and even internet banks have primary lending areas. Yes. So the banks have to define what their primary lending area, the, the primary place they're going to take deposits in is the same place they have to make loans. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you would get inequitable disparate treatment. If I took you know, money in from a, a, a lower income area and I lent it out to a higher income area because the loans there were safer, that's very discriminatory mm-hmm. and banks, you know, Decades and, you know, a hundred years ago would do that kind of stuff because they said, oh, it was safer to lend money in this higher income area. Well, that, that's all sorts of discrimination, whether it's racial or whether it's, you know, class or whatever it is that they're you know, discriminated against. So that's actually prohibited by law in almost every country that I'm aware of. So what happens is banks have to make loans in areas. Mm-hmm. And banks, all banks really need community reinvestment, you know, community development lending, these smaller loans. If your business is a side hustle and it's making less than a million dollars a year in the United States, yeah. you're an ideal candidate for these banks to make a loan to because they need to exhibit to their regulators that they're making these smaller loans to smaller businesses and helping foster growth in the community. They have a requirement to do that. Yeah. So if you, if you think of yourself as a competitive disadvantage because you're saying, Chris, I'm not a big company. Mm-hmm. You're wrong because you're exactly what these banks need. 
You just got to find a bank that's willing to give you that, that exposure and give you that opportunity and start with the bank that you have deposits with. It might not be the biggest, you know, loan ever to begin if you're starting a business. Yeah. Uh, I think my original one on my, my business that I just started a couple of years ago was like 9,500 bucks was, was a line of credit they gave me. And I was like, yeah. what, the, what the hell? <laughs> and um, I think in, in a matter of two years up to 150,000, mm-hmm. and that's a line of credit. That, that's not a credit card. That's just a line of credit that I can use for, you know, funding, you know, the business if I need to. And I've never used it. But it just goes to show you how quickly that can grow in just a matter of a couple of years. Yeah. Um, but starting that relationship mm-hmm. with the first, and I could have got easily got pissed off and walked away with the 9,500 bucks saying, this is not enough. I'm never going to be able to use this for my business purposes. But I didn't. I knew that was the beginning of a relationship mm-hmm. and that if my business grew, they would go with me and they did. Yes. And how would you explain, you know, um, loans from banks and the liquidity like some people it could be very difficult to explain what liquidity means like in terms of the banking system and what does this what does this mean to us and yeah to our business yeah so during the great recession uh there was a run on banks people were going to the banks and they were taking their deposits out and like we just talked about right banks take your deposit and they loan them out that's the way banks make money but if you call you pull all your deposits out Banks have to take the money and give it back to you. But if it's all lent out, that creates a liquidity issue. They need to come up with money to give to you, the depositors. True. So a recessionary economy, people have these run on banks where they, they're going to the bank saying, I want my money, my money, my money, my money. Oh, sorry, too much caffeine this morning. I want my money back. I want my money back. <laughs> yeah. um, and banks have to find a way to give you the money. Well, the way banks operate the most efficiently is they're loaning as much money as they're getting in. They only keep a certain amount in reserve so that they have liquidity on hand. But if a lot of people come in asking for that money, it creates a problem for the banks and then banks don't have the money to lend out anymore. They're under a liquidity crunch. Today's economy, we have the opposite perspective. We've had 14 years of artificial interest rate deflation. You've had an unprecedented pandemic. You've got a massive uh, shortage of supply in the real estate economy. And we have this tremendous newfound wealth in all sorts of interesting vehicles like cryptocurrency, you know, like NFTs and it's all these new ways that people are coming up with money and it's a very economically prosperous time. Mm-hmm. So the banking system is flush, flush with capital. Mm-hmm. There's tons of liquidity in the banking system right now. There's every bank that I'm aware of across the country has got an excess of, of, of money in the system. So what does that mean? That means they've got more people bringing deposits in at a faster pace and they can make loans to get it out. Mm-hmm. So right now banks are actually looking to make loans to the extent that they can. And you'll, you'll find a lot of creative lending that's in, in the environment right now. And I don't think it's always going to be this way. It's always a you know, subtle balance over time where there's cycles up and down. Yeah. Recessionary economies tend to last seven to 10 years from trough to trough. So one recession to the next recession is usually about seven to 10 years. We're in 14 years now of this non-recessionary economy, this prosperous economy. Mm-hmm. By all outward measures, this is the longest time I think, I, and I've gone back to 1929, the Great Recession, till now that we've ever had a length of this level of prosperity. Wow. And nobody really knows what happens next. There's lots of economists. There's Zandy over at Moody's. There's lots of people out there that are talking about what could happen. And I, I am not smart enough to tell you what could happen. All I can tell you is right now, there's a ton of money in the banking system. There's a ton of people that are looking to make loans and there's a ton of opportunity. If you're looking to get loans out there, there are so many unique lenders, even non-bank lenders that are offering products that you can get. I mean, there's people like Cabbage who is associated with American Express. There's, you know, all sorts of, there's, you know, SoFi, it was student loan lender now has, you know, business lines of credit and personal loans and there's all sorts of them, H&R Block um, and their TurboTax platform. They now offer loans. A lot of these people are now even doing this thing where they're, they're, they're attaching, they're looking into your account via Plaid, which basically gives them access to look at your deposit accounts. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, John and, and Jane deposit, you know, $20,000 a month in their business account and they spend this amount a month. They're doing an automatic cash flow analysis and saying, hey, congratulations, we'll give you $30,000 uh, $30, loan yeah. right there. I mean, mm-hmm. instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And that, that liquidity in the system is helping do that is because banks need to get this money out there. True. Ah, great. That means now we could lend more money from the bank because we're in a prosperous time, basically. <laughs> yeah. And you'll see that in, in less prosperous times, like in 2007, when we started our bank, uh, there was not enough liquidity in the system and nobody was making loans. It was, it was so incredibly difficult to get a loan for anything, to buy a home, to get a business loan, to, you know, whatever you need. It was difficult. But it's the complete opposite of that now. Liquidity is in the system. And honestly, if you're listening to this and you want to start a business, I mean, you're not going to have a better access to capital at cheaper rates than you do now. I mean, it, it is astonishingly cheap and there's tons of, tons of capital in the system. Oh, that's great. And as a means of um, you know, investment also, we have the cryptocurrency, like you mentioned already, like NFTs and all that. And 
for me, I believe now it's like more of a trend because a lot of people are getting much more involved in it than ever before. So yeah. is there any form of way that the bank is involved in this? And how can we ourselves personally, you know, diversify into cryptocurrency investments? So, I mean, any any kind of newer investment is always going to have a bit, you know, a bit of a hesitation. Like, you know, you have to understand that there's just a little more inherent risk and there's a lot more volatility in cryptocurrency that we've seen thus far. Uh, what I'll tell you is, is I, I'm fascinated by it. I study it to the extent that I can, but I am by no means a subject matter expert. There are people who are smarter than me out there. But so the banking system is just now getting into it because you have to understand the banks are federally regulated, right? Yes. There's the FDIC, there's the state agencies, in some cases, there's the Federal Reserve, and they have their regulators. And regulators are slower to change, particularly when you have something like cryptocurrency, which is so volatile. If this were securities or stock, the, the law is well-seated and well-precedented there. They know exactly how to treat it. But, keep, but cryptocurrency is not regulated by the SEC. It's not considered to be a security at this point in time. But that is changing. Uh, I want to say it's um, I want to say it's Montana. No, it's Wyoming. Wyoming is leading the way. One of the two. I, 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 there's so many case laws that I've read. Leading the way with cryptocurrency and bankruptcy court. Hmm. And that's really, really important for regulation. And the reason why is that because they're a first mover – because the bankruptcy courts now have interpreted that particularly two types of cryptocurrency, Ethereum and Bitcoin, have futures markets, they can value those assets for the purposes of bankruptcy proceedings. That might sound like nothing you know, for us and you know, for people who just want to actively invest. But what that does mean is that means that the system is now moving into the direction of recognizing this as you know, almost like a security. Mm-hmm. Sadly, the, the opposite side of that coin is that means that regulation is likely to come in not too long after all these things happen. And that could change the dynamic a little bit. But whether we like it or not, cryptocurrency and the blockchain are here to stay. And what form that looks like over time, I don't know. If you're asking me, what do I own cryptocurrency? Yes, I own uh, Ethereum. I own some Doge, which has not been doing too well as of late. And I own Bitcoin, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's more because I'm a big believer in the blockchain, not so much cryptocurrency. The volatility there has been kind of hard to predict. And I don't know that I could tell somebody younger to invest in it because it'd be an emotional roller coaster. That's why real estate for me is such a is such an easy thing for me to invest in because it's consistent and I get a check every single month. Yeah. I don't have to monitor it, liquidate some assets, figure it out. It's I invest some money in real estate. I get a check every single month, and you can you can do the same thing with securities. You can go into you know stocks and and securities that provide dividends on a quarterly basis. You just get your check every three months as opposed to every month, like I do as a landlord. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love the cryptocurrency space. I'm fascinated by it. I I, I tend to buy um, somewhere between five hundred dollars and a thousand dollars worth of cryptocurrency a month, which is not a lot. But you think about it, I do it every single month, mm-hmm. and then I also make investments along the way. Uh, and I tend I tend to buy the lows, but you know, it's it's a tough space to navigate. If you want to be in cryptocurrency, it's a twenty four seven market. Mm-hmm. You will have emotional highs and lows <laughs> as things go on. You can, yeah. the whole market can shift based on you know what Elon Musk tweets or what somebody else, <laughs> yeah, you know, a Reddit forum, and and it's yes. a beautiful, wonderful new environment, and I love it to death. I don't I don't want people to to, to think that that I'm, I'm speaking badly about cryptocurrency and NFTs. I love every part of it. I think it's, it's a great thing. The banking system just hasn't gotten there yet. Mm. The, the, the non-bank lenders are in that space and we have some strategic partners on the buy, hold, sell side yeah. for cryptocurrency and they're awesome people and they're a great group mm-hmm. and the banks are slowly getting into it. We definitely want to be a first mover in the space, but yeah. um, I don't think the regulators have fully gotten their arms around it yet. So as banks get more and more into it and regulation starts to develop, you'll see banks be a lot more heavy handed in the space. Wow, okay. But it's it's safe for us to just invest the money that we are, you know, not making use of, for example, into it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think saving to go into a, a real estate investment or in a securities is probably a little bit more predictable. But if mm-hmm. you can handle the risk and you're willing to take a potential loss on it, yeah. there are people who have made millions, tens of millions in things like Bitcoin, but they got in a long time ago and they waited it out. Mm-hmm. They're not day trading the asset where they're buying and selling and buying and selling. If you get in today, you have to understand you got to play the long game. A lot of people think that Bitcoin is going to go to $100,000 per coin because it's got a definitive you know, end date and there's only so much that can be mined. And th- that might be true. And if you go in today, you know, $160,000 coin, it's an entirely different investment than when you did you know, years ago for, you know, call it $1,000 or $100 for that matter. True. That's true. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Chris. I've learned so much from you already, like learning about, you know, financial literacy. Like I'm wiser than I started this episode already. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully it's some value, man. I'm just trying to help. So much value. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, congratulations on your, on your new podcast. 
it is entitled oh, yeah. the Aya Standard Podcast. We started of recent this year, um, 2021. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to you know wonderful episodes that are going to be releasing on the podcast. So can can you just tell can you tell us about this podcast and what we are to look forward to? Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's not like none of the things that I do on social media are money making endeavors. This is like I don't sell anything. I'm not you know there's no money in this for me. This is really me spending money to to kind of give back. I've been very blessed and lucky, and I would like to. If we can help one person and pay it forward, that's the idea. So the podcast came about because I was talking to great people like you, you know, and, and we have these great conversations and it just seems like there's a lot of like-minded people out there who have the same open things they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I've got a lot of people that I'm really close to, a lot of those high net worth individuals, a lot of those celebrity friends of mine, they come on the podcast and, you know, it's been, it's been a really, really great experience. We opened up with Jamil, who's on A&E's Triple Digit Flip, another real estate investor. Um, this last Tuesday, Jim Wilkinson, former chief staff, secretary of state during the Great Recession. So he comes from the White House. Mm-hmm. You know, these, are, these are wonderful people, but they all bring these unique, different perspectives. It's so yeah. cool, right? Yes. Just like talking to you, you know, different part of the world, different things you're talking about. Yeah. So I will, I will give everybody a warning, though. I cuss, <laughs> I cuss a whole lot in the podcast. There's a lot of expletives. <laughs> A lot of angry stuff going on. And we, we also do, I do 20 minute solos where I teach people about financial literacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach people about things that I've seen about how to improve and, and kind of just little nuances that, that, that may be helpful in their life. And we do it in 20 minute, like little bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. And then we do the longer 40 minute interviews. And, and honestly, you know, it's, it's been a fun experience. Yeah. And you have your YouTube channel also, you know, to accompany that where you have awesome videos. I've, I've watched some of them already about liquidity, for example. And yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. awesome. Uh, YouTube, TikTok and Instagram. It's all at my name, at Chris Nahibi. It's N-A-G-H-I-B-I. Uh, and it's all out there. I mean, you, you can find me, but uh, it, it's, it's all supposed to be a free resource. You know, yes. it, it's we don't have a tremendous following, but, you know, we're growing and scaling and it's fun. And, uh, you know, hopefully it provides value. And if it doesn't, that's OK. You don't have to watch. <laughs> so I'm going to place all of this information in the show notes of this episode and I encourage everyone to subscribe to your podcast to subscribe to your YouTube channel and get it across to you you know to get more financial advice or you know any questions that has to be answered in terms of financial stability but one thing that I would, I would love to say is I would love to say you know thank you so much for the audio you know, pro bono legal work that you do for families in need, for example, and you, you do a lot of, you know, this local non-profit work for, for children with rare diseases. And you also, one very important thing that you do is also you empower women of all ages in, you know, interest in the in construction and uh, manufacturing trades. That, that's so awesome. That's wonderful work that you do apart from your, you know, your legal job and your, your real estate um, job also. So can, can you share, you know, so um, you can share about these services that you offer and this um, free will voluntary services that you do too. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at some point you have to look in the mirror and say to yourself, you know, what am I leaving this planet with? Mm-hmm. You can't take the money with you. And truly, you know, if relationships are the truest form of currency, yeah. that person in the mirror is going to be gone one day. It's going to be buried in the ground and you're going to move on. Mm-hmm. The, the legacy that we leave on this world is the impact that we make to people's lives. Yeah. And, I recognized a long time ago that, you know, I could establish wealth and it'd, it'd be all good. And that was my, that was my goal when I was younger, but to be in a position to give back to people to, to change their life has longer lasting implications. And if I'm gone tomorrow, my son will know that his dad really wanted to help people and really did try to give back, mm-hmm. not asking for anything, just give back. Yeah. Um, we, we have a nonprofit called She Built This City out in North Carolina and now South Carolina. And they, uh, they, they try to empower women in the trades. A lot of times, contractors, people in business and construction, they were males. And it's a very male-dominated industry. And there was a lot of discrimination. And, and it's not just women anymore. It started off as She Built the City and it was just focused on women. But we've opened the doors, LBGTQ and, and you know, the, the plus, actually. And, and we, we spent a lot of time really opening up the demographic to other people and genders. And, and we really want everybody to have the opportunity. And we should all be able to build a home or be a plumber or do all these things. And we should all not have a stigma of trying to learn it. But when you go into a male dominated industry, there's a lot of that. So we're trying to do that and they do wonderful shops. We have these, uh, you know, mobile, mobile homes essentially where we can go out and train people on local sites. We bring you know, young kids in and they learn and we bring adults in and teach them as well. And it's a wonderful platform. Demi, who I met at Yale, um, founded it and has really been instrumental in its growth. And she's been astonishing. The law firm is pro bono. I take on some four fee cases on a case by case basis to pay for the pro bono stuff. We do a lot of work. There are a couple areas I won't touch. I don't touch family law and I don't touch criminal law just because 
honestly, I'm not the best subject matter expert there, but I do a lot of stuff in real estate and cars and finance and contracts and corporate governance and stuff like that, just to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we get very, very busy there and, and, you know, it's hard because you got a time management and you're working for free. Yes. There's a lot of people who don't have access to the legal systems. They get screwed over by somebody and, and they don't have anybody to turn to and they look, they look online and they don't have anybody to help them. So our job is to help them and to, you know, enforce their rights and, and make sure they have a voice that's heard. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else, it, it's really, it's just trying to be a good person. You know, that, that's nobody beautiful. teaches you how to do that. And, yeah. and hopefully, hopefully we're doing it right. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Like changing the lives of people and giving them, you know, a better opportunity and a better chance to life. Yeah. If we can, you know, if we can, it's not always successful, man. It's, it's a tough road and life is not fair sometimes, but mm. to the extent that we can give back and do the right thing, mm. that's what this is about. So what's the best way to, you know, connect and work with you? For example, if someone is out there who needs like your, your, your help, for example, or wants to get across to you in, in terms of getting some inquiries or wants to do something with um, the Black Crown Corporation, for example, what's the best way to get, connect with you? I'm not famous or a celebrity by any stretch of the imagination, and I don't get a lot of people reaching out to me, um, at least not, not too many that I can't handle. So you can, you can find me on any social media platform to send me a direct message. My email is all out there if, if you want to find it, but you can go to the, you know, blackcrowninc.com or, you know, there, there, there's a ton of ways to find me. You can just Google my name. It all comes up and, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm happy to help anybody. Uh, just know some days are heavier schedule wise and I can't respond to everybody some days, but I'll get back to everybody eventually. It just takes me time. Oh, awesome. Great. Thank you. All of this information will be in the show notes of the episode. And one more time. So I encourage everyone who is interested to just click on the links, copy the links and just get across to Chris for whatever inquiry that you need. Chris is a very awesome person. He's going to answer your questions or your, your emails or whatever inquiries that you have. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time. I really appreciate this wonderful time with you. I've learned so much about financial stability. I've learned a lot more about um, real estate investment and also cryptocurrency a little bit and the banking system that also awesome thank you so much yeah. thank you man i had a great time wow you made it to the very end of this episode thank you so much for listening i'm grateful for your time your love and your contributions subscribe like review and share this podcast god bless you bye